Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7 is this thing we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the most famous sermon ever preached uh, by Jesus, by the most famous man ever who lived. I believe that it contains within it such incredible truths that can impact us personally and as a church. So I'm really excited about the journey we're going to go on. Our plan is we're going to go through every verse uh, probably over the next 12 months uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll, be, we'll take a couple of breaks in the middle of it to do a couple of different things, but pretty much it's going to be every verse right through Sermon on the Mount. It is the, probably the most famous sermon ever, but it's the, most le- it's the least understood sermon ever, I would say. And certainly it's the least obeyed sermon ever. It is packed with such incredible richness and meaning. People think they know what it says until they read it, and then it shakes them up on the inside and potentially can change their life. So... And it has impacted the world in a huge way. This sermon that we're going to be studying has caused, you know, the legal system in the United Kingdom is based very much on the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, our educational system, a huge amount of things that we just take for granted have come about because of the teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. It starts in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the first particular bit there. But it starts with this thing called the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Jesus gives us a list of blessed characteristics that we can have in our life. And just as a way of introducing this, here's a quick film clip from Video Gospel According to Matthew, which gives you a little bit of a brief introduction and kind of puts you the picture of how the Sermon on the Mount started. So cue the clip. The disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit! For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness where they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, For they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that gives you a bit of an introduction to what we're going to be looking at. The, we, we put this together on Carlton Hill last week. We, got, we grabbed a pile of bass and gave some, some tea towels. Now, it was fairly accurate apart from there was only a few dozen people standing there. For, but when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount, there might well have been thousands I would guess there would have been thousands. It's a little bit inaccurate in that he's standing up talking, but as we'll see in a few moments, Jesus sat down to do the Sermon on the Mount, and that's significant. 
And it's a little bit inaccurate in that Jesus wasn't American. Uh, contrary to uh, what a lot of people believe. No, he wasn't American. Okay, who was Matthew? Well, the Sermon on the Mount appears in Matthew's Gospel. My plan in, in this message is to take you through kind of two things. I want to take you through looking at an introduction to the whole series that's going to last this next year. Who was Matthew and what was the Sermon on the Mount? I want to answer those questions. And then one of the second part of the message, I want to really focus in on the first one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. So who was Matthew? Matthew, the tax collector, the disciple, and the gospel writer. Father, we ask as we turn to your word, as we learn about you, Jesus, and we learn from you, Jesus, in your greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, I pray that you'd speak to us, I pray you'd grip us in our hearts, and I pray you'd let us learn great things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, introduction to Matthew. Let me, let me read to you the first moment that Matthew himself appears in the Gospels. Mark chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. As he walked along, he saw Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting by the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him, and his disciples, uh, with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, he asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Matthew was a tax collector. Before Jesus came along, he was a tax collector. Just to put that in context, in that time, Many of the Jewish people were, spend, were spending up to 50% of their income on taxes. They were so heavily taxed by the Roman oppressors. They were spending anything up to 50%. Furthermore, 70% of people who lived in the land at that time were on the breadline. It was a hugely poor area. 70% of people were in poverty. That, coupled with high taxes, made tax collectors deplorable. People hated tax collectors. Here's three reasons why people hated tax collectors. They hated tax collectors because they were typically Jewish men collecting on behalf of the Romans. So these were traitors. You're one of us and you're collecting on behalf of our oppressors, the Romans. Furthermore, they were adding their own fee to the tax. So the Romans had the tax, but then the tax collectors would add their fee to that tax. And they wouldn't tell people what the fee was, and the Romans didn't audit it. So they didn't care what the tax collectors did as long as they got the taxes. So the tax collectors were making a lot of money from a lot of poor people. And furthermore, the tax collectors who were Jewish people were associating with Gentile people, the Romans. And this, to the Jews, was despicable. Because the Jews were very narrow-minded, very racist, and they did not like the idea of intermingling or hanging out with or do, having any business affairs or any dealings at all with non-Jewish people. This resulted in tax collectors being treated like Gentiles. Tax collectors, as far as Jews were concerned, you're no longer a Jew. You're now no longer, we don't even consider you one of our nation. They treated them deplorably. And often tax collectors, if, if your son became a tax collector, fathers would excommunicate the son from the family. We want nothing to do with you. How could you become a tax collector? So it was that kind of guy that Jesus called. This is Matthew. Hated, despised, potentially rejected from his family. And now Jesus 
at the risk of his own reputation, hangs out with Matthew. I love that. And he hung out with Matthew and he went to his house for a meal and Matthew brings all his other buddies who are rejected by society, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And Jesus was there in the middle of this crazy party of people with his disciples. (laughs) It was nuts. And the religious say, how could Jesus do this? And Jesus' answer is this, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, it's the sick. And if the Pharisees had realized it, they're also the sick. In fact, they're probably sicker. And Jesus has always been interested in calling sinners. That's why I'm a pastor. That's why you're all in this church. Because we're pretty pathetic. And Jesus is interested in pathetic people like us. Losers. People who don't make the score. And as a church, we want to be devoted to what he was devoted to. We want to make his mission our mission. What are we all about at Destiny Church? Him and about his mission of reaching as many precious individuals in this city who he loves but who are far from him just now. He loves sinners, so do we. Jesus was accused by the religious leaders in Luke seven thirty four. He said, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Because Jesus ate their food and went to their parties. Now, he didn't get drunk and he wasn't a glutton. But the, he, he got this reputation, you're a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus was so cool. He, he went to the parties. He made friends with them. He didn't participate in their sin. And he reached them. He was interested in people. He was a friend of sinners. I love that. So that was the backdrop. Now, Matthew was born also in Nazareth, the same town that Jesus grew up in and where Jesus worked as a carpenter. I don't know if they knew each other. Likelihood is, in that kind of little town mentality, most people would have known each other. So Matthew might well have known Jesus, having grown up in Nazareth. And here when Jesus calls Matthew, Matthew is leaving a very lucrative career as a tax collector, earning a lot of money to follow Jesus. Notice it says when Jesus comes and calls him, he leaves his tax booth and follows him. Presumably he left the money in the till and everything. He just walked out. It was radical. This was a radical commitment. First of all, everyone had rejected him up to now, and he was the most famous man ever, if, if you could call him a man, Jesus Christ, calling me to be one of his disciples. And he left everything and followed Jesus. You know, when you've got a choice in life of good and the best, you want to ditch the good and go for the best. Nothing is comparable to following Jesus Christ. Matthew followed Jesus. And having done that, three of Matthew's brothers also became apostles, James, Simon, and Jude. Amazing. So Matthew went from being a rejected tax collector to becoming an author of the world's all-time bestseller, the Bible. An author in it. One of the 44 authors of the whole Bible is Matthew, this despised, rejected tax collector. He went from being a despised man to becoming a a writer of one, one of the authors of the world's all-time bestseller, the Bible. Isn't that amazing? So here's this guy, a nobody. Now, Matthew was very well qualified to write the gospel. Tax collectors in those days were very educated people. They spoke three languages. They also knew a form of shorthand. So the likelihood is that Matthew's gospel, which was only published uh, 10 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection, the likelihood is that as Matthew was hanging out with Jesus and watching the miracles and hearing the parables and hearing the teachings, he would have been jotting down in shorthand quick notes. So when he came to write the gospel, he would have had an accurate rendition of everything that took place. He was educated, he knew three languages, and he was able 
to take shorthand notes. He wrote his gospel in Hebrew. James the Less eventually translated it into Greek. So he wrote the gospel. And he also went on to become a great apostle, spreading Christianity around uh, the known world at that time. Matthew, after the resurrection, started telling everyone about Jesus he could. He went on to, to preach about Jesus in Parthia and Ethiopia. And eventually in AD 60, he was martyred in Ethiopia in a town called Nadaba, and he was martyred by being axed to death by a halberd in AD 60. This was a courageous man. He went from being a nobody, a despised nobody, to becoming a writer of a world's all-time bestseller, to becoming a hero who championed the cause of Christ in Africa and many other parts of Asia, and eventually he died and he's with the Lord now. Amazing. So that's Matthew. Why did he write the gospel? Well, I mean, there are many theological reasons But let me just give you one that I reckon. I reckon Matthew was so gripped with someone like God who would take an interest in someone like him. And he said, I've got to tell the world about this Jesus. He was gripped by the Lord who would take interest in him who is despised. Amazing. So Matthew's gospel is all about Jesus. Matthew chapter one, verse one says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right in there, packed with information about Jesus. Verse one of Matthew's gospel. It's all about Jesus. It tells us he's called Jesus. (laughs) It's a big one. Jesus means God our savior. So in that verse, we understand that Jesus isn't just a man. This is God. This is God the savior. In, In some parts of South America, they're, they call kids Jesus. They're not God, right? They're just, hey, God, our Savior. Well, that's just, that's just their title. But when you're talking about Jesus, Jesus, the real one, he's saying, hey, God, our Savior. This is actually God. This is not just a title. This is actually who he is. Jesus is God, our Savior. That's what the ma- name means in the original language. So we see this is the genealogy of Jesus. And it says he is the Christ, it says. Christ means anointed one. This was the one that the Jews, the Messiah, the the one that the anointed one that they'd longed for, the one that hundreds of years of prophecies had predicted would come. So this was, this is the same one, this is Jesus, the anointed one. This is the one they'd all been looking for. And Matthew's saying, this is the one, this is the deliverer, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And it says, he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. It says he's a son. And that's, and we understand he's the son of God, i.e. He's divine. But also here it's son, small s. He's a human being. He's not some phantom. He's not kind of got kidding on human body, but he's really God. He's totally God and totally man. This is a man, but yet this is God. Later on in chapter one, Matthew says, well, this is to fulfill the prophecy from Isaiah that the virgin will be with child and give birth to their son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus was fully God and fully man. And, it, and Matthew says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that's big. You see, David was a king in Israel's history, one of the greatest kings. And God spoke to David and said, one day, one of your offspring will have an eternal kingdom. And this was Jesus. So we understand from this verse that Jesus is king, the king, the king of kings. He's on the throne today, he rules and reigns, and we're in his presence just now. He is the king. 
He also says he's the son of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, years before David, there was a man called Abraham who lived, and God gave Abraham a promise, and God says, through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the son of Abraham tells me that he's the one, Jesus is the one, through whom every person on this planet can experience true blessing. Through him and through his people, the church. Matthew tells us about Jesus. And then in Matthew's gospel, he goes on to unpack about Jesus. Straight after that verse one, he gives us a genealogy about Jesus Christ, the family tree. Now they're the bits, when you're doing your Bible reading, they're the bits you kind of, all right, skip over the family trees. Give me some interesting stuff. So we skip over the so-and-so begat so-and-so and became the father of so-and-so who became the father of so-and-so. We think, what interest does that have in my life? But when you look at Matthew Gospel chapter one, you see the family tree of Jesus. Earthly, his earthly, humanly speaking, family tree through Mary and Joseph. And here we see he, Matthew deliberately calls out four important people. See, the family tree is all men. And he became the father of, and he became the father of, and he became the father of. But in the middle of it is four women. And they stand out like a sore thumb. And he didn't need to mention them. Because in most family lines, you don't mention the women in those days. But he mentioned them because they were significant. There was four of them. There was Tamar. And Tamar, well, she's the one who acted as a prostitute so she could have sex with her father-in-law, Judah. Okay, and then there's Rahab. She's in the family line in Matthew chapter 1. Rahab was also a prostitute. And in fact, Tamar, the first person I spoke about, Tamar, was also a non-Jew. She was a Gentile. A person who faked being a prostitute had sex with her father-in-law, Judah, to have a kid. She's one of Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers, and she's also a Gentile. Now there's Rahab, and she was the prostitute as well in Jericho City, and she was also a Gentile. And then we have Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. She sneaked into bed with Boaz. Nothing happens. Still a bit dodgy. <laughs> and then you have, in, in Matthew Gospel chapter 1, and then you have, and then there was she who is the wife, who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Didn't even mention her name. The scandal of it. He didn't even mention her name. Bathsheba. She's the one who'd been married to Uriah the Hittite. The likelihood was she was also a Hittite, a non-Jew. And she had had sex with David, the king. And they had Solomon. And she was a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Matthew, what are you doing? Well, Matthew, what he was doing was this. He was saying, I'm a despised, rejected tax collector. And I was a nobody. And I was rejected. And I discovered one big deal is that Jesus Christ came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And he associates himself deliberately with sinful individuals, not to endorse their sin, but to save them eternally from their sin. He's not interested in how you appear religiously on the outside. He's interested in saving you authentically from what your sin would do to you, eternally speaking. And he personally pays the price for you. And I want to tell you that Jesus, in his life, in his very birth, the fact of his birth, he was associated deliberately by God, by individuals who were corrupt individuals. 
Let me draw their attention to you. He deliberately mentions all four because he wants you to know that he's come. Jesus has come deliberately to associate with a sinful world. Amazing. Not just with a sinful Jewish world, but also with a sinful Gentile world, the whole world. So Matthew's gospel is all about Jesus. And then in Matthew, the chapters go on, and it comes to chapter 5, and this is the Sermon on the Mount. But before the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 4, Jesus is preaching one message. And his message was this, Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach. So what did Jesus begin to preach? Saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the word repent, we looked at, I think it's metanahu in Greek, we looked at it a, a few weeks ago. The Greek word to repent means change your minds, change your mind, change your thinking, change your thoughts about yourself and change your thoughts about God. So he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying it's time to think differently about life, about God, because God's kingdom is here. Now, with that in mind, he goes on to the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read through, as we will, the Sermon on the Mount, you will discover Jesus takes the world and he does this. He turns it upside down. That's why he's saying repent. We need to change our thinking completely about how we've seen life. So he says things like this. You've heard that it says, hate your enemies. And we say, that's right. But then Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Well, I've got to change my mind about that one. He said a ton of stuff puts great value on things that we put no value on. And it turns on its head the world's values and systems. And he says, if you want to be interested in my way of doing things, in my kingdom, I'm a king and I have a kingdom. If you want to be interested in that kingdom, then you've got to repent. You've got to change the way you view all of life. So in that backdrop, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He leads on to the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, incidentally, doesn't just cut against the secular way of viewing the world. It also cuts against the grain of the religious way of viewing the world. Jesus is saying, don't be religious thinking. Don't be secular in your thinking. Be kingdom in your thinking. I am the king. Be my follower. Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the disciples, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he's opened his mouth and taught them. This is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. This is him just getting himself ready. It says he went up on the mountain. This is a mountainside teaching. He was up on the mountain edge. It was a natural amphitheater. The crowds gathered to hear him. Mountains are often significant in the Bible. We see, for example, the Ten Commandments were given on the Mount Sinai. Here was the Ten Commandments given that ushered in the Old Covenant and here now was Jesus Christ, the King, through whom we have the new covenant announcing, you could call the manifesto of his kingdom to his people, saying, this is what my kingdom's all about. I'm a king. This is what I stand for. And the Bible says he sat down. He wasn't standing up doing this sermon. He was sitting down. In our culture, if you have something important to say, you stand up and you say it. But in the Jewish culture at that time, if you had something important to say, you would sit down. It was the common thing for rabbis and teachers in those days when they did their important teachings to sit down and to address the crowd. So Jesus sat down and he had something very important to share. And he says he opened his mouth. Now we think, all right, yeah, he opened his mouth because you have to do that to do a sermon. But that was actually a turn of phrase, he opened his mouth. That was 
how they began orations. That, that was how it's, when they were describing an important statement that was going to come, they said, and he opened his mouth. It was a statement that described, it was a turn of phrase that described the importance of what he was about to talk about. In our way of saying it, it would be like someone saying to you, let me bear my heart to you. And then you'd go on to say what you're going to say. In the same way, the Bible here says, and he opened his mouth. Then he went on to say, it's the same thing. He's saying, let me bear my heart to you. What I'm about to say comes from the heartbeat of God. What I'm about to share with you is of great and eternal significance. Listen. And he opened his mouth. And then he went on to start with the Beatitudes. And we're going to take um, probably a month and a half to work our way through the Beatitudes. Now, the question about the Sermon on the Mount is, well, who was this written for? And there's lots of debate if you if you're interested and you're a geek and you read funny books, there are lots of people who have lots of things to say about, well, who was the Sermon on the Mount written to? And it's important that you know, because if it wasn't written for you, then we're kind of wasting the next year. Who was it written for? Well, here's what some people have said. Some people say, well, this is a moral code that will get you into heaven. The Sermon on the Mount, moral codes, that will get you into heaven. It's like the social gospel. You see, what was important about Jesus wasn't whether or not he was God or not, that's you can disagree on that if you want. That's not important. What was important about Jesus wasn't whether or not he risen from the dead or the virgin birth. That's not important. What was important about Jesus was the things he taught. It was his moral teachings. That was what was important about Jesus. That was, that's, the, that's what we call the social gospel. And we believe that the teachings of Jesus are great moral teachings. And they are of high value. But his death and resurrection are vitally important. And whether or not he was God is hugely important. So they reduce it down to great moral teachings. You obey the Sermon on the Mount, you get into heaven. You don't, well, we don't want to say anything else. That's what they would say. My sister's husband's in Guernsey. Great guy, love him to bits. Chat to him about God. So Tim, do you follow Jesus? Uh, well, I, Peter, I do my best to follow, you know, do unto others as you have done unto yourself. Love your neighbor. He's saying he tries to obey the Sermon on the Mount. Now listen, I know him. He doesn't, Okay. And it's very common to say, you know, so are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, you know what I do? I do my best. I'm a good person. I do my best. I try and obey the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, right. Have you read the Ten Commandments? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? You're indicating to me you haven't really read what we're about to read. It's nuts. <laughs> yeah, I adhere to that. Wow, I'm impressed. Because I don't. I fail on every count of what I'm about to read here. I fail big style on the Sermon on the Mount. So that's one opinion. I don't agree with that. The other opinion is that, well, the Sermon on the Mount was written for the Jews. It was just Jesus' exposition of the Mosaic law, the Jewish Moses law. He was just expounding it for the Jewish audience. It doesn't really relate to us Gentile people, us non-Jewish folk. It's all just for the Jewish people who were listening to him at the time. That was one explanation. That's another explanation. Another explanation is that the Sermon on the Mount isn't relevant for us now. It's relevant for those after the return of Jesus. Well, that's helpful. This is a dispensational approach. They say the Sermon on the Mount is for another dispensation. It's for another era. In the kingdom age, after Jesus' return, then we will live the Sermon on the Mount. So in the meantime, we don't need to live or teach it. My friend Peter Granger who was the pastor at Charlotte Chapel, he was saying, Peter, for many years, Charlotte Chapel believed this. They believed that the Sermon on the Mount was for 
another dispensation, another era. So they never taught it. Now I know that Peter Granger did teach the Sermon on the Mount. Not because he thought Jesus had returned, but because he figured out what they had historically believed was wrong. I don't believe this is for another era. I believe this is for now. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was talking about an imminent message. Some people say, well, this is the Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages. They say that the Sermon on the Mount, well, that's for the spiritual elite. You know, this is, they called it the, the councils of perfection. It's for those who are aspiring to a higher level, like the monks, you know, who make the vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience, uh, who, who commit themselves to restricted lives. The Sermon on the Mount, that's for them. Or you have people who say the Sermon on the Mount, this is Martin Luther's approach, the reformer. He said the Sermon on the Mount is for your private life, not for your public life. So it's easy in your private life to turn the other cheek. You know, if someone slaps you in one cheek, turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. But you can't do that in your public life because some of you are soldiers and, some of you, and you, can't, you can't do that. And some of you are magistrates and you must dish out punishments. So Martin Luther drew a distinction between your private life and your public life. And he said that it's all about your private life. The Sermon on the Mount does not apply to your public life. The Anabaptists who were around at the same time as Luther, they said the Sermon on the Mount is for those who are willing to isolate themselves from society. They would say it's impossible to live the Sermon on the Mount in a secular world. So you must isolate yourself and live like hermits. So they say things like, Jesus said you can't make any vows. So you can't go to a court hearing or you can't make any wedding vows. Or, you know, so they were applying this strictly and saying you cannot live in a society and obey the Sermon on the Mount. You have to isolate yourself like a hermit. Later on, the Lutherans believed that the Sermon on the Mount was given for the purpose of driving people to despair. Uh, You think, man, I hope a year's time from now you're not driven to despair. But it's like, how on earth? This is a high bar. I can't achieve that. What the heck? Let me give an answer. Let me give what I believe is the right answer. What was the Sermon on the Mount about? Who was it written for? What was its purpose? Matthew 5, 1 and 2, it says it, the answers in the verse we read. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Who's it for? It's for disciples. Disciple means a learner. This is for people who are saying, I want to learn. I want to grow. It's for people specifically who said, Jesus, you're my king. I want to be part of your kingdom. Tell me what your kingdom's all about. It's for people who have had an encounter with God and could consider themselves disciples, hopefully folks like you and me, whose lives have been changed by God, who are aspiring to be ongoing disciples of Jesus and make a difference with their lives. That's who it's for. And here's the thing. In and of yourself, in and of your natural ability, we fail on every count in the Sermon on the Mount. The bar is high. But here's the thing. When you become a disciple of his, his spirit comes and lives in you you're reborn, you're born again, you have a new life, and he empowers you to live a life that you couldn't on your, in and of your own ability. John Stott said it this way, only a belief in the necessity and the possibility of a new birth can keep us from reading the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. So you have the foolish optimist who says, yes, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, right. And you have those who are given up to hopeless despair saying, we can't live up to this. But listen, we believe in a supernatural God who gets hold of disciples' lives who are willing to submit to the king and he empowers you to live at a different level. And it's nothing to do with you getting to heaven.
It's wanting to live a life that pleases him. So let's look specifically at the first thing that Jesus spoke about, poor in spirit. Now you're sitting here thinking, there's something missing from the sermon. There's like a a void in the sermon. There was no joke at the beginning. (laughs) Now here's the thing, my experience of pastoring this church is, okay, let me not say that, because this isn't the half of the hope. If I said something heretical from the pulpit, no one would say anything. If I misquoted Jesus, no one would say anything. But if I miss out a joke, I get emails. <laughs> now listen, I don't understand that because my jokes are naff. And I, don't t- I read them funny. I, I kind of, sometimes I jumble them out and don't say the punchline properly and people groan. So why the heck do you want the joke? Okay, here's the joke. <laughs> Being poor in spirit. Little Johnny went to his mother one day and demanded a bicycle. He said, I want a bike. His mother thought, this is an opportunity to teach Johnny a lesson about his moral condition. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to teach him something here. Johnny, you're a bad little boy. Now listen, it's not Christmas and we don't have endless amounts of money. So you're not getting a bike. So you need to go away and think about your moral condition before God. You need to pray that Jesus will give you a bike. And you should write Jesus a letter and tell him honestly about your life and ask for a bike. Johnny went in a tenth tantrum after this. And mum sent him to his room. Anyway, in the room, little Johnny reconsidered and thought, I I will write a letter to Jesus. So he writes this first letter to Jesus and he says, Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy this year and I would appreciate a new bicycle. Your friend, little Johnny. Now after writing that, he figured, that was a lie. I haven't really been that good. Mm. Jesus knows everything. I can't write that. So he rewrote, Dear Jesus, I've been an okay boy this year. I want a new bicycle, yours truly, little Johnny. Well, Johnny knew that that also wasn't totally the truth, so he scrumpled that up and threw it in the bin, and and he rewrote. He said, Dear Jesus, I've thought about being a good boy this year. Can I have a new bicycle signed, little Johnny? Well, Johnny honestly was looking deep in his soul by now, and he said, "I, I I haven't even thought about it, to be honest. So he ripped it up, and he stormed out the bedroom, went out for a walk, And after a while, he walked past a Catholic church, and he walked into the Catholic church, and everyone was kneeling, so he also kneeled, and he looked around, wondering what to do. Anyway, he said, I don't know anything about this place, so he walked out. On the way out, there was a little statue, and he grabbed the statue and shoved it in his jacket and ran back home. He jumped onto the bed and got the statue of the Virgin Mary out, and he got his pen and paper, and he wrote down, Jesus, I've broken most of the Ten Commandments. I've pinged rubbers at the school. I've tore up my sister's Barbie doll and lots more. I'm desperate. I've got your mother. If you ever want to see her again, give me a bike. Signs, you know who. We don't know if he got a bike or not, but. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, that's like a contradictory statement. Blessed, poor, in spirit. It's like they don't sit together. Repent. Change your thinking. Stop viewing things from a secular perspective. Repent. Change your thinking. Stop viewing things from a religious perspective. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For this is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed, many people have translated as happy. And in one sense, it does mean that. So people call this the be happy attitudes. And in a little way, it does mean happiness. 
But it's a ton more than happiness. It goes far further than any definition of happiness you've ever heard. Blessed is the Greek word makarios, which means supremely blessed, fortunate, well off, happy to be approved by God. You see, when you think happiness, when you think your definition of happiness, it would be subjective. It's based on, I was happy yesterday because for once in 365 days in this year in Scotland, it hasn't snowed. And I could take my scarf off. And now I'm beetroot red because I exposed myself too much to the sun, but I'm happy. It was circumstantial. Not deeper than that, it was just circumstance. You're happy because your circumstance was going well. Or you're happy because you got the relationship you wanted. Or you're happy because you got your money in the bank. Or you're happy because you got food in your tummy. Happiness is subjective based on circumstance. Well, that's not the definition of happy here. The definition is far bigger than happiness. It's blessed. And it's nothing to do with your feelings. It's nothing to do with your circumstance. It's everything to do with God. And he doesn't change. And he's consistent. And he's for you. There is no higher form of blessing than to be approved by God. There is no higher form of blessing than to be approved by God. There is no higher form of blessing than to be approved by God. You know, give me cars, give me money, give me every pleasure, give me anything this world has to offer. It does not compare to being approved by God. Now that's happy. That's blessed. Jesus is saying, blessed, approved by God, are the poor in spirit. Now this, this blows out the water, the secular and the religious person. Because our approach to success to that kind of blessedness, that kind of happiness, is all external first. The secular person says, get the stuff, get the title, get the things around you, then you'll get the happiness. The religious person says, do good things, turn up at church, take off the brownie points, then you'll get blessedness. God starts on the inside. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. God starts with inside. True success comes from the inside. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of external regulations. It's a challenge to our attitudes. It goes deep. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, what does that mean? It means spiritually destitute. You want that kind of blessing. You want, I mean, mega blessing, mega happiness, ultimate fulfillment, total acceptance by God, the favor of God in your life, the provision of God in your life. You want that. Well, do the very thing you least expected to do. Be someone who's poor in spirit. We don't associate poor as, with anything good usually. But Jesus associates this. Now, there's two words in the Greek language for poor. One is poor versus rich. Like you're a poor person who has to work compared to the rich person who doesn't have to work. So in the Greek language, there was that kind of word used for poor in general. You're a poor person, you need to work. Rich people don't need to work. But then there was another word for poor, and that's the word that was used here. It was the Greek words, ptokos, I think. And it means this, a beggar. 
absolute poverty, up to their eyes in debt, totally dependent on others. Blessed are those who are in absolute poverty, spiritually destitute, up to their eyes in debt, totally and utterly needy for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is not talking about people who lack spiritual backbone or moral fiber. This is talking about someone who is the opposite to being spiritually proud. It's a person who knows I am needy in the spiritual realm. It means you recognize your need of God. See, what I've noticed is this. If you look around in our world, you have people who are not saved and who are totally disinterested in God, and you ask them about their inner condition. They'll say, I'm fine. They have no sense of internal neediness. On the flip side, you've got many of us who have been gripped by God. Rather than feeling, I've got it sorted now, we don't feel that. Instead, we feel, I am so needy. I mean, I thought you had the answer. I know. But I feel so needy. Well, Jesus is saying, blessed. Wow, approved of God. It's a good sign. Adoniram Judson, who went on to become the first American missionary internationally. He was a very intelligent and clever man. Years before he ever became a Christian, he studied theology. And after studying theology, he concluded there was no God. And he decided he was going to make it his ambition to bankrupt people's faith. He went to the prestigious Covenant College in Rhode Island. And there, he and his flatmate, Jacob Ames, became passionate propagators of atheism on campus. Now, they were clever guys. They were intelligent guys. And they were very good at communicating. So they would, as often as they could, any Christian they saw who was trying to defend Christianity, they would try and refute the Christian. And if possible, they would get people to hijack their faith. Sorry, just dump it and walk away. And they succeeded in causing many people to walk away from faith. Anyway, they finished their studies and they went their ways, Jacob Ames and Adoniram Judson. Years later, Adoniram Judson had an interview in New York City to work in a theater company. So he got on a horse and went to New York City from Boston. After the interview the next day, he was tired. He was traveling back to Boston from New York City. He was tired. He was exhausted. And after a day on horseback, he knew he couldn't keep going. He pulled over. He found an inn. And he turned up at the inn. There's nothing else nearby. He turned up at the inn. And he said, have you got a room for the night? I'm exhausted. I need somewhere to sleep. The innkeeper said, listen, unfortunately, you can't stay here tonight. I'm really sorry. And he said, well, listen, I don't need a, I don't, I, I, I'm happy to sleep on a floor. It doesn't bother me. It just needs somewhere, shelter. I'm so exhausted. And he said, well, it's not that we don't have rooms. He's got plenty of rooms. The problem is there's a man in this uh, hotel. He's dying. And he's making a huge fuss. And he keeps going to fits and he shouts out profanities and he's cursing and swearing and blaspheming God. And he's in death throes and he's not happy. You're not going to get an ounce of sleep in this hotel. And he said, listen, I'll take my risk. I'm exhausted. Just give me a room. So he said, well, if, if you're up for that, then fine. And he gave him a room key. Adonai Judson hardly got a wink of sleep that night. He was sleeping next, trying to sleep next door to the room where this guy was dying the guy was in death throes. He was cursing and swearing and anger against God. 
in the morning, Adam Aaron Judson came down to check in. And as he was checking in, he said to the innkeeper, he said, you're right, I didn't get an ounce of sleep. And the innkeeper said, I was really sad. That man died last night. Such a shame. He was a very educated man. He went to study at Provident College in, in Rhode Island. A man by the name of Jacob Ames. Adam Judson said, can you say that again? He said, yeah, he was an educated man. Went to Rhode Island College. A man by the name of Jacob Ames. Adoniram Judson got on his horse and he tried his best to concentrate. And he was trying to get through this journey, but he just couldn't. With every thud of the, of the horse's feet on the ground, it was like a beat saying, death, hell, death, and hell, death. And eventually, in weeping, he got off his horse. He fell on his knees before God and made his peace with God. Adoniram Judson went on to become a great, the first missionary from the United States of America. He became a missionary to India, then eventually to Burma, and it was him who translated the Bible into Burmese, and his wife translated it into Thai. You see, if you say, I have no spiritual need, then you're a very poor person. But one of the things that causes someone to get saved, and one of the things that highlights to someone that is saved, that they are saved, is you're aware, I need God. I can't even live without him. I need God. It's like your disqualification is your qualification. It's like the thing you think, I I can't live without God. You feel totally disqualified. That's your qualification. People who say, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount starts by saying, you can't do this by yourself. You need God. And you need God, and this is, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. 1991, I got saved, I was 15, I'm 34 now. And when I was 15, I realized, having lived many years before that, that I thought I didn't need God, now I knew I needed God. Now, 19 years later, do you know what? Today, I am more aware of my need of God. I'm not saying that for effect, honestly. If you heard my prayer times, you would know I'm telling the truth. I am more aware of my desperate need of God than I've ever been in my entire life. And I get down about that until I read this verse and it says, favored and accepted by God are the poor in spirit. Wow. So good news, losers. We win. Here's some people who understood spiritual poverty. Isaiah. Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wow, I mean, it will be awesome. We will. But this side of heaven, wouldn't it be awesome? I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, and each had six wings covered. With two he covered his faces, and with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called another, one to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among, amidst, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw God. And what was the response? Your God. No. His response is, woe is me. I've seen God. Woe is me. Now, Isaiah went on to become a world influencer. 
but he was poor in spirit. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, if anyone feels anything in the presence of God save an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that they have never faced him. That is the meaning of this beatitude. John MacArthur tells a story of a guy he met in California, and this guy in California, hippie, cool guy, kept telling everyone about all these times when Jesus had appeared to him. Uh, you know, it's amazing. I, I just, I, I, Jesus kept appearing, man. He's also the guy who said, there is no medical evidence that smoking pot ever detrimentally affected anyone's mental well-being whatsoever. And it was the same guy. He also said, seen Jesus lots of times. John MacArthur said, so last time you saw Jesus, what happened? He said, well, dude, I was shaving and Jesus appeared. John MacArthur said, so what did you do? Well, I just kept right on shaving. (laughs) John MacArthur said, that wasn't Jesus. (laughs) Isaiah saw God and he said, woe is me. Peter the Apostle, Luke 5, 8, Jesus has just said, right, you're a fisherman, I know you haven't caught any fish, you're not doing very well. Cast your net on the other side of the boat and you're going to catch some fish. And Peter did this and he caught the biggest catch of fish. And, that, and that's an accurate, accurate historic story. And then Peter in Luke 5, 8 says, when Simon saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You see, poverty in spirit, away from me, Lord. Now notice, the apostle Peter didn't cease being bold and cocky. He was. He didn't suppress his personality traits. I'm not, we're not talking about that. We're not saying kind of, woe was me kind of individual. You just suppress your confidence and abilities in life. I'm not talking about that. Peter continued to be bold and a bit brash at times. But he had a poverty in spirit that deep within, because poverty of spirit has nothing to do with how you appear to people. Nothing at all. You could be the most cocky individual, seemingly, or you could be the most quiet, retiring, seemingly humble person. Yeah, it's got zip to do with how you appear before God. Zip. Peter was bold and confident. Yeah, he said, I'm a sinner. He was truly blessed and he became a world impactor. D.A. Carson said this, poverty in spirit cannot be artificially induced by self-hatred and still less does it have anything in common with showy humility. It's not about suppressing yourself or it's not about kind of, look how humble I am. It's about just acknowledging, I need God. Jesus told the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14, Jesus said to some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to, to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee took up, looked, stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home before God, justified. Justified before God. The difference was this. The Pharisee thought he was prosperous in spirit. But he was poor. And the tax collector, the publican, knew he was poor. But God said, he's justified. 
blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not about becoming poor in spirit. All right, okay, well, you convinced me, Peter, I'll become poor in spirit. It's not about that. You can't become poor in spirit. We are poor in spirit. The question is, are we deluded or not? That's the question. It's not about, all right, then I'll, I'll do that then, Jesus. Thanks for the advice, good sermon, Peter. It's not, you can't do it. You are it. You are poor in spirit. And these people were just saying, I am poor in spirit. Woe is me. I'm poor in spirit. I need God. I can't live without God. It's an acknowledgement of the reality of who you already are rather than trying to be someone you're not. The Apostle Paul, he kind of put in pretty stark view for us. This is the verse I read earlier just after the worship time. It says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 9, put no, putting no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to speak about himself. Though I myself have reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I more so. So the Apostle Paul now goes on and tells you, here's why I'm such a good guy. Here's my qualifications, fleshly qualifications. It's kind of tongue in cheek. He says, circumcised in the eighth day, I was a Jew. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. That's the highest of the high. That was the closest adherent to the Jewish law. That was the one that all the kids wanted to be like, the hero, Pharisee. As for zeal, oh, I persecuted the church. Paul, previously called Saul, was so zealous, so he thought for God, that he was, thought he was serving God and persecuting the church. He was so zealous. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. You could not find a thing wrong in this guy's record. For whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish. Say rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You know the word rubbish in the Greek language is the Greek word Scubalon, which means dung. Say dung. We have another word for that in our language. This was shocking. Honestly, this was, he, he didn't have a nice translation to cover up what he was saying here. He said, you know, all my life before, like all those qualifications listed, all that, it's crap. It's not good. I'm serious. I, I actually toyed with this, the possibility of calling this sermon, life without God is crap. I thought about that. Then I thought, I can't mention that word in church. So I didn't call it that. I even had a PowerPoint. You know, I had, a, I, I had it all planned. Life without God is crap. It is. Your life without God, I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how much you think God, God's got going for you or just... You've got all these things in life. You've got zip if you don't have God. Your life's crap. And that's what the Bible says. That's biblical. And it's crude and it's offensive, but deliberately so. That's what Paul said. He said, your life without God is crap. You need God. You are in desperate need. And if you don't acknowledge it, you're in an eternally dangerous place. In conclusion, Jesus talks about heaven. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How do you get to heaven? 
by obeying the Sermon on the Mount? No, you can't. You're not good enough. Step one in the Sermon on the Mount says, you ain't good enough. Face it. Acknowledge your spiritual poverty. You're not good enough. You can't live this out. You're not good enough to get to heaven. That says you're blessed. Heaven's yours. Acknowledge you're not good enough. Acknowledge, I can't do this without God. I need God. Step one, getting to heaven is the realization that you're not good enough and you need God. And then God says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, blessed on earth, you're blessed. And eternally speaking, you have the kingdom of heaven because you're poor in spirit. The same Jesus who taught this Sermon on the Mount went on and died a barbaric death on a cross. He died on your place, in my place. He took our sin, he took our failings, he took our corruptions, he took our messed upness, he paid the price for it. He died in our place. He took the hell that I deserved and you deserved. He took your punishment so you in exchange could get God's forgiveness, so you could get God's heaven, so you could get blessing and approval from God. Step one, I need you. Jesus, I believe in you. Jesus on the third day rose again. He's alive now. He wants to save your soul forever. He wants to give you the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting. The sermon began and we read, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. We focus on who's this written for. It's for disciples. But notice also there was the crowd. It says the crowd came to him. And sure, the disciples were on, they were the in crowd. They were listening in. They were saying, we've decided already. We're going to follow you as king. Teach me. The disciples were saying that, but the crowd were intrigued. The crowd was saying, I want to hear the manifesto of this king. I want to know if this is the kind of king I want to follow. And the crowd were listening in. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, we read this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. We want this king. The crowd went from being onlookers to becoming disciples. Saved. Heaven was theirs. Okay, we're going to close. I'm going to pray. But I'm going to just give you this opportunity. You might be the most secular person going with everything going for you or nothing going for you. Or you might be the most religious person going. But I want to say to you that every person in this room is needy before God. You have a poverty of spirit. It is our greatest and most profound needs. We are spiritually destitute. And step one to any blessedness or the kingdom of heaven is I need God. So I want to encourage you, go from being crowds to becoming someone who is willing to yield your whole life to this king. Let's pray. Lord, we want to say thank you. Jesus, you are the king. Thank you that you taught great things. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, that your manifesto, your presentation of what your kingdom is all about. God, I pray that as we go through this Sermon on the Mount over the next few months, I pray that you would grip our lives, you'd change us from the inside out, that God, we would understand you deeper, we'd be closer to you. I want to thank you that you love human beings. Thank you for 
the em- emphasis of Matthew that he was a rejected tax collector and you, the God of all creation, saved him. You took an interest in those who others had rejected. And I want to thank you that not one of us here today is, is as far as morally speaking or spiritually speaking, is anything great before you, God. But I want to thank you, God, as we acknowledge that you're the God who saves us. When we stop trying to save ourselves, you save us. When we acknowledge our need before you, you satisfy our need. I pray for every person here, God. I pray for those who are believers and have been feeling a deepening sense of neediness. I pray that they would be deeply encouraged. They would know that accepted by God, blessed, happy, favored by God are they. I pray, God, for those who have been spiritually neutral and on the fence. I pray, God, that not that they would conjure up some feeling of emotion here, but the, but the, the reality of their life without God would just hit them and they would, with no excuses, come to you. So Jesus, you're the king, we honor you. Okay, take a moment to respond to God. Take a moment to respond, pray back your response to God. How people are doing that, it might be that some of you here, you know that you are not connected with God yet. And the truth is that God loves you deeply and wants you to be his. Why not today acknowledge your need of him? Put your trust in Jesus Christ who died for your nose again and allow him to be your Lord, your king, and you become his disciple. And then yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's yours. That's you, pray with me. If you want to make that commitment, make Jesus number one in your life. I invite you to pray with me just now. Just one line at a time. Repeat this prayer after me quietly under your breath. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your incredible love for me. Thank you because of your love. You were willing to die in my place on the cross. I want to thank you that on the third day you rose from the dead, victorious. Thank you you're alive right now. I acknowledge before you I need you. I can't live without you. Come, forgive me. Enter into my life. Give me a new star. Jesus, be Lord from now on. And from now on, I'm going to follow you as my king. Thanks for hearing my prayer. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, I believe God heard you. If that's you, I'd love the privilege of praying for you and just asking God to bless you at this moment in your life as you're embarking on a future with God I'd love the privilege of praying for you if that's you and you made that decision just there just let me know you did that by quickly raising your hand and I'm going to pray for anyone who did that is anyone like that thank you anyone else thanks anyone else just put their hand up and I'll pray in a moment for anyone who prayed that prayer thank you Father, thank you for my three friends today who in your presence have made a decision. And they've, in one sense, it's a decision, in one sense, it's an acknowledgement. 
They acknowledge they need you. They can't live without you. God, I pray, let them know right now the favor and the acceptance and the blessedness of God in their lives. Let them know the smile of God. Not because they're so good, but because you're so good. Because Jesus, you died in their place so they could be forgiven right now and they could be cleansed. I pray that from this day forward, they would live for you, Jesus, and their lives would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to worship.